Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody that's listening. Wherever and whenever this podcast finds you, welcome to the Did You Know podcast, and I'm your host, Dustin. So thanks for tuning in. And today we have a really awesome interview with Daniel Coffin, who's a, um, a freelance intellectual, a former academic. He taught in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley, San Francisco Art Institute, and kind of felt really constrained by it. And so we have a variety of topics, you know, including, you know, being a born again intellectual, like, you know, cultural changes in free speech culture, um, importance of branding in cultural movements. Um, and a bunch of other topics. It was just kind of a really freewheeling episode that I very much enjoyed, and I think you guys will as well. If you could do me a really quick favor, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star in a written view. That's the biggest thing and the best thing that you can do for me, and I'd really, really appreciate that. And go to digiknowcrypto.com and click on the Apple's icon that'll show up there, and you can leave a review. Uh, you could also go to supportmypodcast.com to find out the other ways to support. Also, if you click the link that says list, listener discounts, absolutely free. There's a bunch of discounts on a bunch of different Bitcoin related items as well as health items. And I'm adding stuff that's a wide variety of, of, of items. You know, I've got mushroom coffee, I've got Bitcoin tax software, all this stuff. It's really cool. And uh, lastly, I'd like to give a shout out to my sponsor, which is eToro. And they are you know, a platform for uh, for trading uh, crypto assets and traditional assets as well. They're over 12 years old. They predate Bitcoin. They've been around for a long time. They got over a trillion dollars in trading annually, and they got some really cool tools, including virtual trading um, portfolios where you can practice your strategies on real order books so you can see how they'd really react in a real environment but act, not actually risk your own money while you're trying to figure out the best strategies. Connect with over 11 million other traders and you can discuss everything, trading, charting, strategies, anything. Go over to digitalcrypto.com slash eToro, that's E-T-O-R-O, and it's going to redirect you to my affiliate link. What that's going to do is going to let them know you came from me, which is awesome. Thank you guys for doing that. Also, you get $50 once you hit their minimum deposit, which is a few hundred bucks. So head over to digitalcrypto.com slash eToro, that's E-T-O-R-O. And lastly, I'd like to thank you, all the listeners that are hearing my voice right now or watching this on YouTube, whatever it may be. You guys are the ones that make this worthwhile and make it possible for me to do that. So I really do um, extend a heartfelt thanks for you guys taking time out of your day to listen to my thoughts and the even more insightful thoughts of my guests. So thanks again and enjoy the show. Today I have the pleasure to speak to Daniel Coffin, who holds a PhD in rhetoric. Uh, he's a former academic who taught at UC Berkeley and the San Francisco Art Institute and is the author of the book, Reading the Way of Things Toward a New Technology of Making Sense. And is also a, how would you put it as an associate or a, uh, um, at the Renegade University? You know, I'm, you know, I don't know what we call it. You know, yeah, I'm going to go with professor. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't quite know. I was, I was trying to figure out how um, that that was actually. Uh, That's a good question. Going to be phrased. Yeah, I think we're still working that out a little bit. But uh, but welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm honored. Yeah, I I was you know I I came across you actually not it was probably a, a month or so ago when on Thaddeus Russell's podcast 
you guys talked to actually was going to be about a, mostly actually about a subject that's completely unrelated to, to what we're going to focus on today. Perhaps actually we don't really know where the conversation is going to go. Uh, but towards the end there where you talked about your your background and kind of what, what you do now, um, where you work on on branding for corporations as well as for um, uh, crypto uh, startups uh, was, was very interesting to me. But kind of to set the framework and so that the listeners have kind of a, a good foundation for where you come from and where your thought process is. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of just talk about your background, you know, where you grew up, you know, how you came to kind of um, fall into the world of rhetoric. I know that you're also a postmodernist as well, I, I believe, if, if that's a correct assumption. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if we could kind of cover all those to how you got to, to where you are today. Oh, uh, yeah. OK. Uh, you know, so I grew up, you know, a nice uh, a nice Jewish boy uh, born in Manhattan, moved up just north of the city, the suburbs at some point, um, you know, went to, you know, and I come I come from that kind of Jewish family where there's no no uh, doctors, but everyone has either a Ph.D. or a J.D. Um, and that's just sort of yeah, one of those kinds of terminal degrees. And I kind of figured I'd go to law. My brother and sister went into law. And so I, I ended up at uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for college. And I'm so freaking bored. You know, I just, I, 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 I wasn't academically excited. I couldn't imagine actually being a lawyer. It's nothing that made sense. And I stumbled on a brand new department they had there called Cultural Studies. And I read uh, Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality. And I just went bananas. It just completely rearranged my life. And I sort of was born again as this kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, an intellectual with these, you know, this passion for these super sexy French writers, you know, it was such this great version of philosophy. And, you know, so during that last couple of years of college, I was reading Foucault and Derrida and then Nietzsche and Gadamer. And uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And at that time, that was, you know, I, I, I got finished my BA in 1991. There are only two, maybe three places in the country to focus on at the time we called postmodern philosophy or critical theory or continental philosophy. And the sort of premier place in my mind was the UC Berkeley rhetoric department. Uh, so it was the only place I applied. And that's, that's, that's where I went. And when I got there, I didn't think, I didn't have any association with this word rhetoric. Um, but that that sort of changed, right? The department was the strange place with all these people doing these sort of sort of meta discursive theses, right? So what is it to write history? What is it to you know construct the self? What is it was it, you know no one just had like a straight you know history thesis, but they would do something about you know how a discourse was constructed. I actually got interested, in, and it sort of clicked with me was this idea that rhetoric is itself the kind of practice of what we might call postmodern philosophy, of a decentered world where everything is always emergent. It's always emergent at the point of circumstance, the point of engagement with the world. It's always a becoming. It's always in flux. There is no certainty to it. You make your argument, you make your case always without certainty. It's not about proof. It's sort of one of the great things I learned there, right? That rhetoric and argument is not about proof. That in fact, rhetoric and argument begin where proof leaves off, right? Proof ends a conversation, right? It ends debate because it's just the self-evidence, right? It sort of um, subjugates and disallows any more conversation. Um, 
And, you know, but I also figured out that, you know, I, I love teaching, I love thinking and writing, but there was something clearly wrong with the academy and my place in it. You know, my, my dissertation, man, it's all over the place. I'm talking about William Burroughs and all these different, you know, philosophers and um, trying to give this theory of what rhetoric is. And it's the art and logic of what I call circumstantial propriety, making sense of a life in motion while in motion oneself. It's, it's the logic of difference and of reading and interpreting difference. Uh, but what was clear is that I wasn't <laughs> going to become like a professional academic. I make jokes. I curse. I, I refuse to read any so-called secondary literature because I found it unreadable. I found it soul killing. Um, but it also meant I wasn't really going to have an academic career per se. Um, but I stayed teaching as adjunct for about 10 years between Berkeley and uh, the San Francisco Art Institute. That's all to say I finished my degrees in 1998 and all of a sudden there was this dot-com thing happening here in San Francisco. And I wrote my dissertation on a Mac Plus, a floppy disk, had no uh, uh, you know, visual capabilities. But I all of a sudden found myself in this startup. I was the first employee. We didn't know what we were doing yet, but I was asked to write about how different things go together. And I started banging out these essays and getting paid, talking about Borges and The Simpsons and Derrida and William Burroughs. And the next thing I know, we created this, you know, we got funding. And next thing I know, we had a team of like 30 people in charge of all these writers and working with engineers. And we built this incredible arts website called artandculture.com, which mapped all the arts, visual arts, design arts, literary arts, philosophical arts all across time. And we mapped them all associatively so that you weren't stuck in a discipline. It wasn't always a vertical. And uh, we won like every award under the sun. We won Best of South by Southwest and all this crap. But I learned kind of about how companies work, right? And what, how funding worked and how the internet worked technologically and practically. And when our funding got pulled, you know, and whenever that was 2000, I guess, whenever that crash happened, um, I think it was like March. I just reinvented myself, you know, and called myself first a strategist or a UX guy and then a strategist. And yeah, so from that period on, I, I was always teaching, but I call myself a, um, you know, over time it evolved into becoming a brand strategist consultant, um, always sort of working for myself. Um, yeah, and, that, and I just got lucky that way. Where I could, I could flow between the academy and this insane emerging field here in San Francisco, where no one really knew what they were doing. It was also new. So the fact that I could figure shit out relatively quickly, it was a world that actually appreciated a PhD, where the traditional work world would have sort of shit on me, right? Would not have welcomed me. Um, so I was able to sort of create this career on the fly, if you will, you know, um, which was super fortuitous. I don't know how people, how people do it anymore. Uh, I just got super lucky. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kept me um, afloat, you know, for all these years, you know, and I've worked with tons of startups, but also, you know, I did the Fitbit brand. Um, I actually helped rebrand Medium um, and, you know, tons of funded startups. I worked with Banana Republic and um, 
tons with Adobe and with Dolby sound. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's allowed, allowed me to stay in this insanely expensive city and continue to read and write philosophy. That's, that's, that's my trajectory. Well, you, you, uh, to, to go back a little bit, you said that you were born again, um, to, to kind of use that, that parlance yeah. as, as an intellectual. So in, in, in your experience in, in, in your opinion, what is the difference between, um, academic and academia and kind of basically, uh, the, the, the free intellectual that you find yourself to be yeah, today? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I always, you know, I always thought the academy would, was going to be this haven. I was like, well, I love teaching. Right. I just love, especially undergraduates. I, graduate students are a whole nother thing uh, because it's the beginning of the professionalization of ideas. But I loved, you know, when I, when I first read that Foucault history of sexuality, you know, I was, my heart was pounding. You know, I was just lit up. I'm still lit up by that book to this day. Um, and so I thought I could just teach these books to students. I love reading and writing. It's a, always a strange refrain to me where grad students complain about having to write their thesis or write papers. To me, that was the whole point of being there. Um, but what I was beginning to realize, and I, I was so slow to realize, is that the academy is premised on kind of the, um, the neutering of passion and the neutering of real excitement about ideas. It's all about scholarship and establishing your sort of domain and sort of stripping it of all sort of joy, right, of of the sort of erotics of thinking. Uh, and so I've, I've enjoyed what I've been able to do outside the academy uh, and that I can write in you know, my blog. I talk about so many things. I talk about death. I talk about tequila. I talk about movies and TV shows. I talk about particular philosophers. It doesn't matter. No one cares. I can, it, to me, it's the, the joy of making an argument, the joy of writing an essay, the joy of thinking through something which the Academy systematically disallows. Uh, so I, I don't think I ever actually would have really could have succeeded, you know, as an academic, I can't write like that. I can't cite all those sources. I can't eliminate my jokes and my asides and my parentheticals, my exclamation points, my italics. Like I, to me, that's the, that's the joy of thinking. And thanks to the internet, you know, I've been able to, have exchanges with people like Thaddeus and people like Doug Lane at Zero Books um, and, you know, and just all the people out in the world, you know. Um, and it, it, the real trigger there for me was um, right at the end of my teaching at, at Berkeley, I was teaching the introduction to the rhetoric majors, a pretty big class, about, a, you know, small for Berkeley, but big in general, about 100, 150 students. And uh, the university was just beginning to uh, distribute its courses through podcasts, through iTunes U. And they approached me to, to do my class because it was, again, kind of a popular class. And I really discovered what the Internet could do. Right. I mean, my lectures would go live. And within an hour of that, I would get this flood of emails from people all over the world, from all walks of life, wanting to sort of exchange and talk about it. And it really shifted my sense of the classroom. Like I miss, terribly miss being in a classroom. I mean, that's just a, such a lively experience. Um, but there's no way I was going to survive the academy. I, I could write like that. I couldn't, I'd, I'd be in jail by now, to be honest. Um, sued or jail or something terrible would have happened to me. 
And uh, I, I found much more freedom and joy in this other other version of this sort of rebirth, this sort of other intellectual life, if that makes sense. No, definitely. And and I, I kind of had, I mean, I was never to the, to the uh, level that you were as far as for uh, being um, within uh, academia, but I found that it, it just felt so stifling to me, right. you know, having to spend the majority of my time whenever I wrote anything, actually looking up the sources and spending make sure those formatted correctly. I understand the reasoning why they have that um, to a degree, but it just, as far as for uh, objectivity, it makes sense, I guess, although you probably uh, disagree with the concept of that. But uh, <laughs> with but as far as for creativity, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, right, exactly. if you could imagine a artist who was, um, you know, painting a portrait, and then in the left, you know, quarter of the photo or of the of the painting they would have to write all you know all the people that they were drawn <laughs> from brilliant. and all those things and you would just be kind of just sitting there going like oh, well this painting's ruined i don't really want to uh, look that's at this brilliant thing. I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna steal that from you that's really good exactly oh, right i mean it's just life it's so bizarre but it's a way of kind of controlling thought and making sure you never think that creatively because it always needs to be sort of tethered tied back into somebody else's you know, previous work, right? It, 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 exactly what you said, the creativity is just sort of annulled. Um, and yeah, it wasn't, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't for me. Uh, well, do you think that uh, the, the there, there's been a cultural change in, in kind of the, I guess we'd call like left-wing culture, I guess, uh, over the last like 20, 30 years, which is kind of the majority opinion in academia because it, you know, since the counterculture movement in the 60s, it kind of, that's where it kind of really first took hold in the, in the universities and academia. Mm -hmm. And it went from kind of free expression and free fill in the blank, right? To now where it's kind of this Orwellian, you know, yeah. some animals are, are, are more equal than others in, in a way uh, where it's, it's creativity and free expression only within, you know, X parameters. And I, I know that you've talked about that a, a bit. And others, but I, I just I find that to be very strange. Um, yeah. yeah. Given that, growing up, I always I mean I was I came from a conservative household, and I would still probably can count myself as somewhat uh, in that in that uh, spectrum. Um, but I always looked to um, left wing cultures being kind of more that, you know, that's where creativity lie, and and now it just seems very different. And I don't know if that's maybe where some of the stifling um, or if it's just the, the worst of both worlds um, in academia. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, in retrospect or looking at it now and, and, and my experience in the Academy and then seeing what's been going on now again, where I would surely have been fired, jailed, something would have gone terribly awry. Um, sort of like what happened to, uh, to Thaddeus, um, you know, they, they were able to just sort of tune me out, not renew my contract. Right. I didn't have to get, fired per se. Um, but it is, it is an institution that's actually just premised on fear and resentment, you know, and this is definitely my Nietzsche coming out, but you know, Nietzsche talks all about resentment, how the weak, um, always trying to take down the strong, right. And that's, that's his argument about Judeo-Christianity trying to take down Greco-Roman culture. You know, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, trying to take down the beautiful nobles who enjoy life, who take pleasure in life. The academy is so opposed to pleasure. So I, I think this recent 
um, explosion, or I don't know what else to call it, is 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 really just symptomatic of of an ill constituted set of people. And it's, you know, it, it, it petty, weak. I've never seen such um, uh, petty egos. You know, the, my biggest problems that I ran into were from the most esteemed faculty who were somehow the most threatened by me just teaching my piddly little class. I mean, I, I would say something to one of them out of respect and just, you know, as a comrade and, you know, in, in, in teaching and it would always get interpreted that somehow I was judging them. And I, 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 these are senior esteemed faculty at the high pay grade at the, at the height of their careers, still so insecure uh, that I just, I see just as this existential blight that's, that's it, that now they can lash out, you know, with all these rules and, and yell at you for freaking everything you say and do. Um, that, you know, it's, it's a shame, you know, that rap, for me, it's, it's less this, I guess maybe less of a political movement. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't really pay much attention to what's called the political. To me, it's just this ugly world that just doesn't enjoy pleasure. Right. I mean, to me, teaching and writing and thinking is so inherently erotic. It doesn't mean it's necessarily sexual. It doesn't mean you're necessarily fucking your students, but it also doesn't mean you're necessarily not. Right. It's just a stranger place. There's a pleasure in thinking through an idea, of inhabiting a text, of getting excited and then spewing it onto the page and spewing it in the classroom. And the academy is just so, as is clear, so institutionally opposed to any expression of actual pleasure and delight on the campus. And I'm not just talking about, you know, again, sexual harassment. Obviously, there's problems in that world and certain people did gross things. And that's my point is that there's a general erotics of, of learning and teaching that the academy disallows. And so to me, disallows good teaching and learning. And so I think what's been going on over the past bunch of years that, again, I only see through sort of Twitter and some stories, you know, I'm not out there anymore. Um, just seems like, you know, ill-constituted souls, which is a phrase from Nietzsche, expressing their ill-constitution. Uh, if that, that makes sense. Yeah. No, and, and I, I did um, an interview uh probably four four weeks ago, a month ago or so, with uh, Professor John Verveke, and he's from the University of Toronto. And I don't know if, if you've ever heard any, any nope. of his stuff, but um, his he put forward this concept of uh, the meaning crisis in the West, that, um, that with the destruction of traditional institutions, you know, uh, organized religion, you know, fraternal organizations, whatever you want to call it, uh, trust in the government, trust in tradition. This is more in the West than anywhere else, right? But where we've kind of enjoyed kind of this relative stability for quite um, a while um, in, in kind of the short-term history. And with the destructions of those traditional institutions, as we've kind of moved away from them, as people have kind of moved out, they've tried to... Um, fill those gaps right yeah. so whereas you know now you have if you look at you know like veganism you look at crossfit you look at you know a lot of these you know herbal life whatever people kind of take this religious zeal um onto a lot of these things they they have ritualistic practices um that start to develop within these communities and things like that and you almost wonder that if 
when kind of the, you know, as kind of the counterculture movement was, you know, taking hold in academia and was also kind of subverting, if you want to use that word or whatever, of a lot of these traditional institutions at the same time that, whereas now what they'd wanted to, the the institutions that they wanted to gain hold of are now um, less powerful that maybe it's, it's a reaction to that where it's almost a Mm -hmm. conservative conservatism within a left-wing construct, I guess, uh, approach to, to, to wanting to, um, uh, hold the gains that have been made and, and not allow kind of any, um, encroachment against those. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's bizarre what's happened over, over my life, you know, watching it, I definitely came out of a certain 60s countercultural mindset. You know, I, I still have a kind of, you know, will to psychedelia and a will to a kind of play. Um, and, you know, I, I, I come back to Timothy Leary, the tune in, turn on, drop out. And then I'm, I'm in, you'll see where I'm going here. Yeah, I, I'm in Williamsburg a, a couple years ago and in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's supposed to be the epicenter of, you know, hip, hip, new, hip, new culture. And there's a billboard there and it says live, work, create. And I was like, somewhere along the line, what we're calling the hipster, the counterculture is, is now just petty bourgeois, right? Everybody who oh, has, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it, it, where the original countercultural movement was anti-capitalist, didn't want to work. The new world is so premised on labor. And to me, it's that's the efficacy of capitalism to just constantly co-opt anything that would counter it and fold it back into itself. So, you know, they it, it sort of disallows, they never want anything outside its realm. So you get the rise, you know, of the of the campus, the Microsoft campus, the Nike campus, the Google campus, the Facebook campus, right? We'll take care of everything for you. You have no life outside of outside of work labor is everything um well, it's, that's very kind of hinduistic isn't it in what in what sense uh that you know if you look at hinduists yeah. uh hinduists hinduism's um uh, history is that for, there was a period where buddhism moved in and buddhism almost completely supplanted it on the indian yeah. subcontinent and then basically what happened is that the brahmins started to just incorporate all the popular things that people liked with buddhism and incorporate it into their own kind of theology um, and, you know, concepts of, of gods and deities. And there was new ones that were created. And and while Hinduism never spread farther past there, it regained all of its own old territory for the most part by just kind of incorporating um, these concepts into itself and just saying, oh, OK, you like that? Yeah, yeah, we're about that, too. Uh, that's great. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, it's any sort of reigning system in order to survive right seeks to fold the things that oppose it into its realm although some movements thrive off opposition but capitalism is not one of them and where i was headed was that i i can't believe the will to labor especially in the in the youths here in san francisco i these 27 year olds who are really passionate about how to monetize your website and that's what they want to talk to you about at the bar it's just and they're working you know 60 70 80 hours a week and I think they're so evacuated, right? So, you know, you, you talk about this sort of crisis of meaning. Um, I think, you know, as, you know, people are always looking to fill up their world, right? Because they're not 
fill to begin with. And this is, again, it, it comes back to Nietzsche where, you know, he says the Greco-Romans, they define the good as themselves. They're like, you know what's good? I am. I am the nobleman. I am that which is good. There was no exterior good. They didn't judge themselves against a moral code. Um, and then you get the rise of morality, you know, what Nietzsche would call slave morality, the, the Jews. And they don't, they had to get it from outside. They had to fill themselves up. They had to find meaning outside of themselves. Uh, and I think, you know, capitalism is so good on, on, on sort of evacuating us of the ability to have internal meaning, have our own meaning. We're always defined in relationships through transactions, through brands, through um, uh, money, right? Through participation. And, you know, I, you, you talked about veganism or fitness and CrossFit. I, I would, alongside those, I would put the rise of what we now call the golden age of television. People are just empty. And I think the, the, the most dominant drug today, and Terrence McKenna uh, refers to television as a drug, is TV, right? It's just this thing you can fill yourself yeah. up because you're freaking empty. You know, um, and I think that's, I, I, I think it's, I think it's continuous with, you know, from Nietzsche's perspective, it's continuous with the rise of Judeo-Christianity from constantly wanting to define yourself outside yourself. So from religion to capitalism, it all becomes the same thing. It's, it's like, I want to define myself through that which I'm not, rather than saying I am that which is good, just being full and content unto yourself. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, 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 I am a, a free market capitalist, so I, I, I am actually quite a proponent of it as far as for its, its ability and in, in, um, uh, to free people. And it's as far as for all the other options that are available, I've not seen anything that that's as best for being allowing people to um, express themselves as an individual. I don't see socialism, communism. Um, uh, or any of the other isms out there as being a, a better a better way to do it, but looking at uh, you know like hipster culture, I always saw that as just, that was just a it, it's just a weird it, it was <laughs> it, it was it was trying to bring back the countercultural the sixties, but it was just so blatantly ridiculous where it's you know expensive clothes and it's like they want to harken back into an old time, um, but then they but they also want to I, I don't know it was very weird. Yes, it was a it was a very weird. Thing. It was like it was like the mixing of both, and it ruined beards for me. Um, I had a beard for a while, <laughs> and I just didn't want to be seen as a as a hipster. So I, I, I've I've been shaved for for a while. So I'm just waiting for it to swing back again, so I can actually it's go funny. back to to it's what I You know, the oh. Jews the Jews grew their beards because they did they'd want to be associated with the hip Romans. Oh, really? Shaving okay. was pagan. Yeah, that's why they grew the big beards. I, that's my understanding. Um, yeah, do I, you I, see? I, yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say. So yeah. you you still see that the 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 kind of the the current culture that we see, where it's you know it's kind of a faux hyper individualistic because it's about yeah. it's about individ you know be yourself, but be yourself as part of this larger group, right? Like yeah, the, exactly. Like just with the branding, just with Apple's was genius. You know, iMac, iPod, where it 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 has this a motive of be yourself, be this unique snowflake. Um, but which, you know, has a different, different terminology now, but like right. this unique snowflake of, but you're also 
doing what everybody else does, right? So you're yeah. taking your your iMac and you're being your unique self and you're dressing with your beard and your in 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 your um um uh kind of like the what am I thinking of? Well, I'll, I'll just move on anyways. And you're kind of wearing like hipster clothing and the, but then you're going to that you know the free trade coffee shop just like everybody else's and everybody else has the same thing, but you're you're still feeling like you're being very individual individualistic. And I guess maybe even on the coast, a lot of people kind of take almost a, uh, if you, if you want to kind of call it almost like, um, almost like a religious pilgrimage there. If you come from the middle America, right. Where dressing and, and acting like the, in the, in those ways is kind of, out of the norm so you do feel individualistic but then as you kind of migrate farther east or west it becomes less and less so i don't know if that's yeah if yeah, that's I, something it's it's kind of I mean, san francisco thing. san francisco so so disconcertingly troublingly homogeneous i mean it is very very strange what's happened here and i think partially it's you know i think network culture and sort of you know the sort of decentralization of the internet communication you know one of the funny effects that I hadn't considered was what we call the network effect, which is that things actually tend towards a center, right? And so, you know, rather than uh, disrupting um, a lot of industries, of course, what the internet did was accelerate monopolies, right? So now we see of the largest, most powerful monopolies in the history of the world, far and away, companies like Google and Facebook, um, but same with um, identities, right? Now that I, 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 you just see it in, let's say, architecture. How can the architecture of San Francisco look, the coffee shop look just like the architecture in Turkey and just like the architecture of Paris and just like the new place in, in, in Bangkok? It's because it's, they can see it. It's, it, it. You're not limited anymore by um, uh, you know, geography, by isolation, which actually would foster greater individuality, more idiosyncrasy. But with this, with this sort of proliferative you know, distributed communication, it actually tend towards, tends towards more homogeneity. People are constantly identifying themselves. Uh, I'm so, you know, I'm at that age now where I, I, I can see, you know, um, you know I, I, I'm now single and I'm, I go on this online dating and I see how younger women immediately sort of gravitate towards um, uh, the language of the discourse. That rather than there being each one being really weird and unique, I can't believe how similar they all are. And same on, on let's say, Twitter. I can't believe how similar things become in the age of the internet. And that it's something I hadn't quite realized about the strangeness of networks that by creating a global communication conduit, you create not more difference, you create more sameness. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, 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 um, it's troubling to me. And I, I miss the days where people could just be truly fucking weird and, and live in these strange mm -hmm. off the grid places and develop weird ideas and weird personalities. But that doesn't exist anymore. You're always vetted. You're always already filtered through, through this network that is always identifying you and naming you. So if you try to say something, I, I shy away online from talking about a lot of certain issues because I know there's no way in for me. I can't yeah. be nuanced and idiosyncratic. I will immediately be positioned this way or that, or you're pro this, you're pro that. It's like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. and that's, that's a funny effect um, that I ha hadn't occurred to me, um, you know, back in, back in 1998, you know, first well, getting involved like with it. 
people are uh, the humanity as a species is just kind of tends towards centralization. You have these spats of kind of individualism where it's kind of pushed to the edges for a period. And then there's kind of a contraction and then kind of back and forth throughout history. But it seems like for the most part as a species, we value, uh, or at least the majority of people do. And that's always at the detriment of people at the fringes is that we kind of value kind of, you know, kind of a homogenous culture. Right. And it all almost brings into the, it almost brings kind of democracy as a concept for um, um, or, or kind of like these large uh, conglomerations of people kind of into question is, is that really the best way to do it? Where you have these disparate people where you have, you know, a hundred different subcategories where they can kind of agree on a few things largely, but they disagree on like 90% of other things, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a large degree, or wouldn't it not be a, a better way of, of operating, um, whether we're talking about government or just as as, as cultures um, within whatever that may be, yeah. um, kind of separately. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you feel that, that that would be stifling or do you think it's best to allow kind of almost this, this um, internal dissonance to, to constantly be, be tugging at each other? Um, yeah, I mean, I have like a million thoughts all at once here. Um, I mean... I, I can't help thinking about a lot of what we're talking about leading into a lot of the things I'm actually th- thinking and writing about, about, about crypto and about decentralization and about the sort of uh, out of syncness of, of, of how the internet sort of decentralized communication, but then you still have financial structures um, and technologies that are still centralized. And so there's a certain will to, of, of capital and, and this, and, and, and the, the contemporary corporations, ability to centralize capital, right? To accumulate massive amounts of wealth in the hands of very few people and then control a monopoly. And, and their best interest is to keep to keep people all the same. They don't they don't want difference. And one thing that's really excited me over the last couple of years and my involvement in it with my uh, this crypto startup is um, is is the possibility uh, to your point about free markets is actually reintroducing the free market but post-corporation and really introducing both uh, the decentralization of capital, you know, um, and, you know, the decentralization of technology and the, how those two things go hand in hand um, to sort of begin to foster an infrastructure, a culture that actually is not just okay, but fosters and seeks to produce idiosyncrasy and difference, right? That allows competing currencies, man. I mean, competing networks of participation. Um, and I think, um, I, I, that's actually been my excitement about the crypto world is that I, I think it's about pushing decentralization all the way through that the internet, uh, is actually not decentralized, it decentralized communication, but because it's so centralized capital or had the structures in place of the centralization of capital, um, that it. It, 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 we, we find ourselves still tending towards that because the people who are running those things, that's in, that's in the best interest. That's in the best interests of the structure, right? They don't want you being that different, thinking that differently. They want you to be passionate about buying a fucking another iPod, you know, another iPhone. They don't want you to think about not doing that. Um, 
And I, I, I have this kind of hope, this kind of, you know, dream or, or, or excitement over the possibility of what um, a, a true decentralization of capital coupled with the decentralization of communication and information can facilitate. And I think fundamentally new structures, um, you know, post-corporate structures like the DAO and um, sorry, it's on my mind recently because I'm writing an article on it right now. Um, but I think, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I think from, from a perspective of sort of resentment and resentment and weakness as a species, you know, Nietzsche always talks about the human, all too human, this kind of weakness that wants homogeneity. Um, but at the same time, there's always these strands of true radical individuality, of difference, of alternate ways of doing things. Um, and that I think if we had a, structures of capital that that were decentralized and distributed, um, I think you, we'd see less homogeneity. I don't know if I answered your yeah, question. Yeah, no, 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 it's just because, you know, I've, I've always liked the, you know, if within, within a tendency of permaculture, I don't know if, you, if you've ever looked into that as well. It's what's, what's kind word? of a permaculture. Oh, yeah. So, oh, you have? You're talking, you're talking about like growing food? Yeah. So, in, but I mean, in, kind indoors of, and that kind of thing? Yeah, in, in a way. But like, I mean, it's most commonly associated with things like food forests and kind of using, um, you know, efficiencies within uh, the kind of the space that you're that you're at for right. holding and storing energy and that kind of thing. But yeah, one I of the concepts that, yeah. within permaculture is, is that you always have the most abundance at the at the edge, the edge effect, uh, right? So it's not yeah. like right in your orchard or right in the area where you are growing this or that that you have the most um um abundance it's always within um i'm sorry my my three-year-old came down here and yeah, let him. i'm trying to i'm trying to hold her right now yeah, um she can join in but yeah uh and but but you always have the most abundance at the edges right where mm. where the edge of the forest meets the savannah or the prairie and and those those sorts of things and i i always like that kind of concept as far as for how it goes into kind of the 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 cultural aspect where um there, there's another person i listened to uh, he's been on the podcast uh, with with Thaddeus as well michael malice mm. um where he kind of always talks about where the um the kind the, you know the people at the edges of the fringe are the ones that actually create culture right versus the people who are in the mainstream don't they're just following what the people totally. at the edges i love do. that yeah i love that yeah and i and i i think I love that. I'm diligently writing down everything you just said. I love it. Um, I love this idea of abundance and at the edges, at the, at the place of these sort of interstices, these crossing overs. And I, and I think one thing that kind of, again, excites me about decentralization is it creates more edges, right? There are more points, more networks that are, that are running up against each other, right? So it creates more possibilities, I think, of these kinds of changes and abundance rather than it all coming from some uh, uh, sort of univocal source that's deeply self-interested. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I rail against capitalism, but I think what I, what I, one thing I really mean by that is, is contemporary American capitalism, which is a, a rigged system, which is a corporate police state enforcing, you know, the, the interests of very few corporations that have the money to, to buy up the legislature and the, and the, and the army, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, as opposed to, um, you know, I, what crypto has reintroduced to me is is actually um, the power of what free markets could do. Like, why wouldn't you join 
a, a, another social piece, you know, another social media uh, network in which you were paid for your contribution. You were paid for the selling of your data. You know, um, that's just the free market. I don't need the government to come in and tell me. Um, and I think the DAO has this ability to redistribute wealth without any state intervention, without any socialism, without communism. It's a version of capitalism, maybe. Um, but fundamentally, you have competing currencies, um, and these competing networks and, and rules of governance. You create more edges, you know, uh, and I, I think that creates, like you said, more possibilities of, of sort of radical change, of abundance, of um, in, in the end for me, you know, thing I talk about all the time is joy, you know, just living up, living out, living without the constant struggles of rent and healthcare and that are so screwed up in this country, um, you know, that it becomes a kind of oppression day in and day out of, I think, just of daily life for everybody. Well, as far as for, because looking at how we bring these ideas about kind of more into the culture, right? Because very much we are at the fringes and kind of considering these topics, right? Because most people are are just, you know, most people are actually pretty content uh, because, you know, for the vast majority of people, especially historically speaking, you know, you have uh, stable housing, um, you know, you, you're, you're not worried about, I mean, we're, we're at a point now where it's not really um you don't have food to put in uh, on the on the table it's it's a it's it's actually medical issues from the the quality of abundance of food um abundance of un, you know, bad quality of food i guess you would <laughs> right, say right, right. in a, in a lot of ways which is a very weird problem historically but what i've been struggling with is that i've looked at and this is kind of my own thoughts like within bitcoin there was a couple waves there was the first wave which is kind of the cypherpunks the the, the coders the developers um that kind of understood this thing they, they've always they've always toyed with the idea of a digital currency and then um and then it, it always failed when satoshi's genius was that he combined basically pretty much all existing technology uh he, he didn't actually create anything necessarily brand new is that he took all these different things put them together in a way that the game theory and the economics worked mm. and put that together. And then you had the political kind of evangelists that kind of globbed onto it. And a lot of them were uh, libertarians. Although there's, there's some people I interviewed a guy. Um, um, he's a kind of basically a European socialist um, kind of from that more school, less so than the American democratic socialist school, but an actual full on um, European socialist. And, and he's a big um, proponent of Bitcoin and but for the most part it's kind of libertarian ish folks yeah but and then you had the people that kind of glommed on in 2017 and that was kind of the more kind of greed factor kind of you know speculating like could i make a bunch of money from investing in x y or z my ish what, what i've tried to figure out is where do we go from from here and i think that's really branding and i've tried to play around mm -hmm. just with branding of just you know making like little little images or like you know think bitcoin or you know, like these kind of things trying to evoke, you know, the, the kind of memes that Bitcoin inhabits. And it could be just because I don't have that big of a reach, whether or not something is actually a, a good meme or not, or a good brand or not for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But I've been trying to play around with this. And considering your background in a lot of, I mean, very successful brands, I was wondering if you could kind of really kind of go over your approach, you know, 
what most companies miss because we all see these sorts of companies that absolutely miss the mark on right. on branding totally. and and kind of capturing that and then you know your your thoughts on what's needed for a successful brand um and needed to kind of capture the public's attention right right yeah i i, I what most companies do whether regardless of industry is they want to they want to tell you all the things they do all the things are better and they and they and they and they list them all we're faster we're cheaper we're better value we're better quality we have better service but there's no argument there right I, there's no reason to believe there's no you're not telling me you're not making a pitch to me you're just listing a series of attributes right and when i it's funny when i was teaching uh, i taught writing at, at berkeley as a as a grad students how they sort of pay us there students would do the same thing they just list you know in this essay nietzsche does this and he does this and he does this and he does this and he also does this to the point where i actually where they wrote papers for me if they use the word also they lost a full grade as like, you know what you need are connective words uh nietzsche does this therefore he does this which is to say he goes over here but not there therefore this happens right it's this internal logic. And that's the exact same thing I apply to a brand, which is, you know, we believe X, you know, this is, this is what we believe. Therefore we built Y, right? That lets people do Z so that they can feel A, right? And that's basically the structure to me of any brand. And so I think one of the issues um, in, the, in, the, in the crypto world, and, and let's say with Bitcoin in particular is, what is the Y? why does this exist, right? Um, and then beyond getting in what I can then do with it. But if you don't have that why to begin with, you know, that sort of logic of, or that, that you know, it, it branding, something's called the reason to believe, you know, why why do I give a shit? Why, do, why are you doing this? Why are you giving this to me? Am I just getting duped, right? The, the idea of the dupe is so powerful in, especially in the United States, we always think we're getting duped. I always think someone's getting pulled over on us. Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, uh, part, of the, part of the issue I think the crypto world has faced and Bitcoin has faced is they don't know how to talk about it. And they really enjoy um, the, the kind of hermetic world they built. They like the jargon. You know, I mean, I'll click on things, you know, some new, you know, uh, DAP coming out or something. And I click on it and I don't understand a word on the page. And I, I'm in the industry. And I don't understand a word they're saying. I'm like, who is this for? Um, who are you trying to appeal to? And it's so particularly strange because all these currencies only do better the more people are involved with it, the more people adopt it, right? Without adoption, these things just die. There's really no, you know, except for the few people who make, you know, their millions cash in and cash out. But for it to actually thrive as a currency in a network, you need more participation. Uh, and so I think it, it is really about building, um, you know, building an argument. And, you know, I, you know, my um, present uh, startup, um, that's what we lead with, you know. Um, you know, we lead with, with the why, why we're doing what we're doing and how that, you know, we believe X, that's why we're doing Y. And this is the things you can do with it. And to me, again, that's, basically the structure of any brand uh and you know it's, it's just about getting to that sort of consensus by a team um, about why you're doing the thing you're doing and then how that why translates into a what um, and a how
space within, especially within Bitcoin, is that, you know, we take it for granted that, I mean, there's so much to it. Like, because when people ask me, what is Bitcoin, right? It's, it, it actually does, like, you hear different explanations of what it is from different people, um, kind of depending on where they're at in their journey or kind of where they came to uh, it from. Um, and it's it's very difficult for for me even now still to kind of really define what it is. And it's very difficult to make a pitch for something, I guess, uh, for why you should use it or why you should believe in it. Yep. If you also have a, you know, a problem explaining what it is and what problem it solves. Yeah. Um, and you know it's it's branding and and and, and kind of mar- marketing is a dirty word but i don't really think it should be mm-hmm. i think it's just you know it's just a matter of trying to persuade people just like you would within a conversation or a you know uh, whatever you want to call it um yeah. uh a, a disagreement or a um debate although i'm not anyway so that, that's a different discussion um but you've also you were also talking about the the concept of of kind of um, in your episode with, with Thaddeus about the, the concept of affect and, and empathy. Yeah. yeah. And although he kind of disagreed with that, you can actually feel empathy. I think that what, what Bitcoin, um, because I think that's a lot of the people that are in it are very cerebral mm-hmm. are, they have a problem with, with the concept of, of empathy and without empathy, without affect, I don't think that you can really make a mass appeal to to a group to a, you know the the world or wherever you're trying to appeal yeah, to totally yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean you look back at the early just the early 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 computers right i mean that was that of course that was steve jobs and apple's genius was just to you know move away from what we call speeds and feeds right so you know the whole ibm microsoft pitch was always you know you remember those those computers typing in command lines these oh absolutely these ugly screens and and then, you know, the first Apple was just, you had those windows and folders and you just clicked on the thing you wanted and there it was, and it just opened up. Um, and again, that was, that was the brilliance of leading, leading with affect, leading with ease, leading with joy, leading with delight, um, as opposed to constantly explaining yourself. Um, but it's, and I, I think, I think the crypto world is in a similar space right now. It's so new. It's been driven a lot by developers, by economic theorists, and they, it's very comfortable to keep speaking your, your own language, right? It, it's, it, it gives you a sense of being different. I mean, fuck. I mean, when I, when I first discovered like so-called postmodern philosophy, I was that guy, right? I loved all the jargon. I loved feeling different and cool and no one's going to understand what I say. And I would use all these words that no one really understood made me feel better until I realized that was just idiotic, right? That was just my own weakness. It's just petty. Um, but it's a seduction. You know, I told you I wrote this article on, on the, 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 I call it the, the necessity and nuisance of crypto jargon. Um, because you have to use new words. You have to use new language because you're introducing new ideas. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, but there's a seduction to using a certain kind of jargon that is so exclusionary. And what's so particularly interesting about the crypto world is that you need adoption. The whole thing lives and dies. On, on people using it, you know? Um, so it's like the one time you really don't want to be exclusionary. You want to be as inclusive as possible from a brand perspective, from a, from a network perspective, not to mention, 
you know, inclusivity as sort of, you know, a, a dominant sort of principle within the crypto world in general, inclusive of the unbanked, right? I mean, that's sort of a mantra, at least in, in the worlds I travel in. Um, you know, it even shows up in the, in the Libra white paper, right? We, we want to bank the unbanked, um, whether they're sincere in that desire or not, I don't think they are. Uh, but it's all about inclusivity, right? It's all about sort of a radical democratization of the terms of capital and, and wealth distribution. Uh, and so it's, a, it, it's the industry right now is in this funny space because they, they know better from what's happened with the internet. And, and, and you know, you, you want to push as much technical stuff to the background as possible, unless you're speaking to that world and lead with, you know, these, these things like empathy, this understanding with understanding people's needs, with saying, this is why you should use this. We believe this. This is the world we see. We think you see this world too. Here are the tools for you to prosper in that world we both see. That's really what a brand says, right? And Apple sort of done it with creativity, ease and creativity. You see the world we see, right? Don't you want, don't you want to play in this world? That's really the essence of any brand, of any sort of marketing campaign is it's your world building, um, but means you have to appeal to people have to seduce them. They have to want to come where you are. And uh, yeah, I think Bitcoin is definitely, it's become unfortunately sort of sort of associated with sort of get rich and sort of maybe phony get rich, somehow dubious get rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the true power of it, the true revolutionary status of it is never really discussed. I, I, I've been, I've been toying with, with that concept as well, because uh, or, or it, just thinking about it as of late and that, and I just talked about it with, in my last episode as well. And I completely forgot to actually look up what, what uh, episode and, and the person actually that said it, but that they were making a case that greed itself is not maybe the worst. Um, they were actually going full out and saying like that, that's actually a good recruitment tool, I guess, mm. if you want to use it in that way. Um, that that as far as for getting people onboarded into a better financial system, um, you know, you're not lying in that if you actually do believe that, you know, let's say Bitcoin could become a major world currency uh, competitor with other national currencies. It has a much larger upside if you want to you know, look at it in financial terms to go and that, it, you know, at a, at a base level to kind of appeal to the most base instincts of people. Right the same thing that the state does with the, with the lottery. Mm. Um, the same thing that most con men do with, you know, fill in the blank um, multi-level marketing scam. Although they aren't, I mean, I guess technically they're not scams because you can't actually make money, right. but the people who make money in those would make money in anything else anyways, regardless. But um, that appealing to your base instinct may not be the, the worst mm. um, I love thing that. to go. Yeah. I, I actually like that quite a bit. And it's funny. So I, I you know, this team I'm part of, um, the company's called Anatha. It's a funny name. It comes from Anatha Pindinka, a, a, a disciple of Buddha. Um, but one of, one of the things, it's, it's, it's a general sort of uh, uh, decentralization software company, right? We have, we'll, we'll, we'll launch a product in the, in the new year. But the thing that, that drives all our, uh, the sort of ethos and practice of the company is always returning spendable value back to the community. Right. So if, if, you know, if any centralized company sort of siphons off, you know, profits for itself, ours are constantly being redistributed. And at some point, it really is what you just said, right? It's appealing at sort of the level of greed. Like I could join 
I could use this app or this app, but if I use this one, I get money back, right? It's a, it's a credit cards do it, right? It's your cash back scheme. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I think, I think there is real power. That's a good reason to use something. You know, I think, you know, I, we can call it greed, but it's just, it's in your best interest is what we're telling people. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's great. I don't, I don't, I don't think it needs to only be cast in terms of, you know, your, your sort of base human instincts, you know, cause we're yeah. casting it as much more enlightened. We're like, well, we're creating a different structure of wealth distribution. So it doesn't go to a centralized. It's like, if you participate in the network, you profit with the network, right? So it's, yeah. it's self-interest meets grandiose vision, right? Yeah, I think that's that kind of the way that he, his take on it and, and where I kind of agree with him on it is that it's a good way to get people, you know, interested, right? So yeah. there's, you go like, oh, you can make, you know, you, you know, show the charts, you know, Bitcoin make X amount of money, right? And they get into it. And then that's when they start to go, okay, wait, you know, what what is actually this thing that I'm, that I've actually put money into? What does it mean? Why does it exist? It's kind of... Um, the top level funnel, I guess, if you want to call it when you're in, in marketing, right? So to kind of get them in that top level funnel, and then they start to learn more and more um, to kind of get them into that mindset of why the old way, the old financial systems are not in your best interest. Yeah. They're the best interest of the people who, uh, I mean, it's it's very apparent that whoever's the closest to the, the where money creation is, um, you know, from the central bank, uh, than the major national banks. I mean, money is very, very, very cheap. The closer you are to the to the creation of it, and like it's very expensive. The farther down you get, so right, you get down to homeowners, and then you're, you're taking a loan for a car, and then check cashing. I mean, the farther down you get, money gets very, very yeah, expensive. Where, whereas um, within Bitcoin, it's it's very. I don't like to use the term egalitarian because Bitcoin just is as it is. It's right. not it's not trying to be anything all the political implications that it has is just by its very nature because there's no central authority. Um, it just kind of does what it does, but I, the, your, your product and what you were talking about kind of very much jives with the, the, the post that you had on your blog that I really enjoyed. I mean, it was, it was a shorter post, kind of just a very quick take on the Netflix doc, the great hack. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you were kind of, looking at it from the fact that the problem isn't privacy. Cause when we sign up for Facebook, everybody knows your privacy is not the, 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 the issue. The problem is that they are taking your information as a property that you're signing over to them freely without kind of really knowing that it's of any value. And then they're selling that to companies and then you're being, you know, charged for it on the back end in a way yeah. um, without ever profiting from it. And I, I'd love to, I mean, you, you went over it in the kind of the blog post, but if you if you wouldn't mind kind of yeah. going um, over what they missed and then kind of what they got right a little bit as well. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it was sort of a revelation that again that I, I came to through this guy, Edward Hickman, who's the founder CEO of this company I'm working with, where he talks about the information resource economy. Um, and, you know, I, I, I flip on that documentary. I don't even know why I don't I was with my son. We yeah, thought it might be interesting. And what was incredible about it is there's actually nothing interesting in it. Everything in there was already known, right? Um, and uh, it, it keeps coming back to this notion of the invasion of privacy, which has a lot of affective power in the United States, um, or really in the Western world. Um, and so you, you get this kind of outrage. Uh, but the fact is our information, information in general is always used to sell us things, including 
politicians, right? I mean, that's that's of course what it, what, how it's functioning. Um, so I thought there was a sort of false outrage, um, and that the issue they skip over is what the you know the the woman uh, Brittany whatever the hell her name is, um, the so-called whistleblower keeps saying she's like, well, Facebook owes its users money because the data that they're selling is not theirs to sell. Right? I mean, it's such a it's such a a, a simple little jujitsu move, right? That it's it's not about data privacy. Right? That's a red herring that keeps Facebook safe from pillaging and selling our money. That if we really think about information as you know, she argues in this film is is the most valuable asset today, right? It's it, information companies surpassed ExxonMobil, surpassed oil. Um, that. You know, it's, we've seen this massive generation of wealth, but in these highly centralized hands. And yet all of us are these, are, are, are oil wells of information, right? So each of us individually become a potential source of value creation simply by leading our lives, simply by going about the world, right? The things we do, we use our smart devices. We are generating information that companies want to buy. And want to use to to hone their products to sell to us for all kinds of uh, all kinds of uses, um, but we are completely cut out of participation in that value creation, uh, and that I think it will fall to um, you know decentralization and the smart contracts to be able to create social networks that uh, in which you are paid to participate in, in which. You know, it, there will be this this incredible redistribution of wealth, but rather wealth constantly being centralized. It will you will now be paid for the thing that is yours, namely your data. It's not a hundred percent yours. Your data is you're using their app. You're on their servers, right? I mean, it's it, but it's a but it's a rev share, and it's such an easy model. And I don't think we need any government interventions. We don't need the courts to decide it. We just need the market to play it out and the next social network to come along and say, yeah, join our social network. You know, you can sell your data or not. And you participate in the value creation. And all of a sudden we'll see this enormous sort of uh, flourishing globally, right? If everybody who's been locked out of the economy or has a tangential precarious relationship to the global economy, all of a sudden becomes a source of, of wealth, you know, or at least of value. Um, that they they that they can see the returns on immediately in real time through through smart contracts through participation in networks. Uh, I I think you see you talk about dramatic um, a dramatic shift in uh, again in wealth distribution right sort of post I think the corporation will, will be seen as a three hundred year sort of mistake you know supplanted by the the DAO um, and again I think it it evades a lot of distinctions between capitalism, socialism, communism. I think those things all go away. I think we're talking about fundamentally new modes of operation um, that allow some of those old conversations to fade away because um, they become less interesting. Uh, so yeah, I, mean, I think that that document just missed it. And I think it, it becomes almost an ally with Facebook because it keeps the conversation about privacy. And the big horror is what Cambridge Analytica theoretically did, which was sell sell us Donald Trump. But to me, I, I kept thinking, well, Cambridge Analytica took the, the conditions, the resource of the time, and they were brilliant. What an unbelievably well-run company. What a, they did an incredible job. 
The problem is they're dealing with, with data theft. So that's not their fault. Uh, and it's not just Facebook's fault. It's all our faults for agreeing to these terms, for just giving it all away. Um, and so I wait, I wait, you know, the next, the next wave of, of social network that's driven by true decentralized technology and smart contracts that will eliminate and, 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 and the question of privacy and property will become one and the same. You'll control your own data. Of course you will, right? You are constantly moving through the digital landscape, generating data everywhere you go, everything you do. And you'll constantly enter into various ever differing relationships with all kinds of apps and advertisers and all kinds of services. And you'll have deals with them all generate through smart contracts that, that redistribute wealth to you or that share in the, in the value creation with you. You talk about redistribute wealth. Everyone's going to think I'm a, just a socialist, but it's, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, that's my, that's my shtick there. Well, you know, you talked about uh, in the in the in the blog post that you know that one of the fallacies of the film is that they they constantly phrase that targeted ads and news and targeted news and I mean, well, the the news was part of the targeted ad campaign okay. that that you know it was propaganda pushed out and it's right. like, well, I prior to this, it, you know, like you said, it was newspapers, it was radio, and and those were much more centralized sources. Um, prior to Facebook right. and a targeted ad was, was, I mean, I, I do actually appreciate targeted ads more than anything else. Like when I get pushed ads now, you know, now that I, I, I kind of do a lot more privacy related things um, as far as for location and things that, you know, it, those, I get bad, badly targeted ads uh, funny. and it kind of actually bothers me now where I'm going like, yeah. well, I would never be interested in this. Like you guys are doing a really bad job. Right. Um, with your with your targeting that it, that would even come along here, but that um, I thought that was one of the biggest. It was a redirection post twenty sixteen of latching onto this concept of Russia and Cambridge Analytica, and that's why Trump came. That had yeah, nothing yeah. to do with the political atmosphere prior to that. That I mean, I could get where someone on the coast would would feel that way, right? Because you know, you kind of are in this you know, uh, they use the term bubble. I, I mean, everybody's it's in a good. bubble, right? I, yeah. yeah. But, it's very much a bubble here. I'll tell you the Bay area. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's, I mean, but yeah. it's a bubble everywhere. If you go down to, yeah. you know, areas of Texas I've been in where, you know, Alaska was really interesting to grow up in because it was a big mix. You had kind of, I want lower taxes, but leave me alone. Republicans that agreed with kind of like hippies that would smoke weed and, you know, do mushrooms out in the woods kind of all living together. And it was, it was, everyone was kind of, it was, it was weird because there wasn't a lot of that common history that you'd have in a lot of other States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that gave me a better perspective, but, but if you go to middle America where I'm at in the Midwest, like it, it was that a lot of people felt left behind. Um, and I think that Trump did a very good job. I mean, I didn't vote for him. I'm not a fan of him in pretty much any way. There's a few things I think he's done. Okay. Um, as with any president, but, uh, but I think that he tapped into this, this thing that a lot of people were feeling in the country that, that was able to be taken. I don't even know if taken advantage of with targeted ads. It was a lot of just like, if you look at the data, um, that I looked at outside of that documentary, it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of in-group preference type stuff. 
it was a lot of people that already agreed with X being pushed information on yeah, X. Right? Exactly. That's why I, I was so I found that documentary so bizarre. I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm missing something here, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I was 19, 18 when I realized the New York Times was just propaganda, right? I mean, the the, the most egregious version of it, right? The, the the newspaper of record. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I. Well, that's I, very Pravda, anyways. Yeah, exactly, right? And and their whole claim, all the news is fit to print, is what it used to say on it, right? And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, my God, they don't print anything. Right. And, 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 and the the shock. And, and I, I think that whole I mean, again, I don't follow the whole who's president, who's not president. I don't to me, it's, it's all been pretty much the same until this this present guy seems he's he's the first radical president. Um, definitely in my lifetime, probably in the last few hundred years. I mean, he's a true radical. Um, and that that part I think is super exciting. Is he a demented anti-Semitic racist? Maybe I sure sure seems bad for the world and greedy and stupid. Um, but he's a radical, and I think that's I think it's probably in the best interest of the political establishment not to point that out. They want us to think that it was this reduced by the Russians. I mean, to talk about the hilarity of trying to talk about propaganda and the Russians persuaded us to vote for someone is so bizarre to me. But to well, say something else, to say that. He won because he was a radical, right? And the Democrats don't want to say that because then they'd have to be radical and undo their whole structure. Well, if you could, if you could d- define radical, I mean, I think that. Do you mean kind of like as in maverick outside the system? Yes. As John McCain tried to portray himself as. Yeah, exactly. But okay. truly being okay. outside the system. Like I remember when I, 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 for some reason, I know that Trump got in trouble because he called Taiwan when he first took office or something or Taiwan called him and he took the call and everyone's like, no, you can't do that. And he's like, what do you mean you can't do that? I mean, he, at some point, this whatever system we've been operating in is so completely corrupt, you know, that no, they've all been indistinguishable from each other. Um, you know, it's at some point for me, there's really no difference between Bush and, and Obama. Again, I don't pay that much attention, but they seem pretty much the same. They wage the same wars. They impact my life pretty much the same way. Uh, this guy seems that, to be operating according to a different logic. Um, and it's not say a pretty logic and it might be intensely ugly, uh, but it, it's not like the others. Uh, and I think it's easier for an establishment to say, well, we were duped than to suggest mm-hmm. that there's an appetite for something completely freaking different. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, I think that that's, that's true. I, in looking at the front runners, um, for the opposition in 2020 it's i don't i don't really see anything you know radical in a way like you you could call bernie sanders or elizabeth warren's policies radical excuse me in a way um compared to what you know the last you know four or five administrations kind of put forward as kind of being the baseline but as far as for in the terms of that did you define earlier as kind of being outside the system none of them are radical and i think that what you're going to see is it'll be really interesting what happens in this election. I think that short of recession, I think that Trump actually has a pretty good chance of winning, mm. um, especially if they don't put somebody who's more radical um, as a nominee. And I think that if they don't, that will be an aberration. I think that you're going to see these kind of, I don't know if you want to call them reality stars or kind of mm. social media influencer types. I think that's going to be the the, the new norm, right? Yeah. Bombastic loud 
speaking their mind, has no problem, um, you know, putting out a goofy tweet at two in the morning sort of person. Um, I think that's going to become more the new norm. I think that that is the appetite as much as certain people within this um, that, that are running in opposition are saying, Oh, we need to return to normalcy. I don't think that's what people want. Nope. I, um, I, totally I think they wanted radical and they may not like what they got, but I think they liked it more than, than kind of the, the controlled opposition that they had before. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's, I, mean I get, I don't pay much attention. Um, and I, I just, the terms of the discourse, like I said, I, there's no way in, there's no place for nuance, there's no place for subtlety. The terms are so pre-established in ways that, that don't interest me, that I, I, you know, I've never called myself any ism. You know, I, I call myself a socialist, communist, anarchist, pervert, Jew, like, I don't know what the hell I call myself. I, 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 I there's no word for, for it. And so I, I just shy away from, from all of it. Um, but everything you just said to me sounds about right. Just, just at a, at a gut level of my participation on, on the Twitter, um, uh, and seeing the sort of appetite. Um, and, but I, yeah, again, I was not surprised by Donald Trump winning. And, and in fact, I was sort of heartened by it, uh, when he won, because, you know, the, that that Democratic Clinton neoliberal machine is just so egregious, so creepy, that sort of smiling faces, they bomb the shit out of countries. And, um, you know, they they set up all the deportation camps and keep smiling. And, you know, um, so I was not I was not surprised. And I had I was secretly a little hoping that Trump wasn't so completely insane um, and so kind of greedy and dark. Uh, but I got it. And at least it was exciting because he is a radical. And I. You know, geez, you know, my my nice liberal world. I know anyone listening to this, my nice liberal world is cringing as I say these things. But, um, yeah, that's that's the way liberals are. <laughs> I'm yeah, not I know I'm I, not a liberal. That, that no. And yeah. and, you know, I, I wanted to there's a couple other topics I wanted to get in with you, but I, I didn't I didn't really want to take up too much more of your time. And, and maybe um, I'd, I'd like to you know, in, in the near future schedule on here. Cause I want to yeah. talk about um, kind of, I guess more philosophical content concepts of, of just context um, yeah. of, of truth. Right. Because that is something that I'm not, um, I'm not uh, opposed to postmodernism, like um, it, it, as it being some sort of boogeyman um, in the way that a lot of people within my, my, uh, mm. my circles maybe are. Uh, but I am really interested. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just more of a person who's interested in kind of discussing certain topics yeah. because especially as it relates to in the world of, of meaning in the world and where Bitcoin kind of rolls into it as well mm-hmm. as this concept of truth. Right. And I know that postmodernism does not, um, or as far as, at least from my, my understanding of it does not believe in any sort of objective truth that there's no, there's well, no anchor upon which to kind of lash your your boat to. Yes, that's to me. You know, it's funny. I I, I know there is just I, people use this word postmodern. I actually don't use it. To me, I just read different philosophers. You know, a lot of them happen to be 20th century French philosophers, but I, I read lots of things. I read whatever I want, right? As a and you know, I've had a little funny exchanges with Thaddeus because I think we we use we use this word postmodern kind of differently. Um, that when I think I would define it much as you define it, which is it's the it's the logic and the emergent logics 
and ethics and questions of identity of a world in which there is no center. It doesn't mean there aren't um, there isn't a local propriety, emergent propriety here and there, but there's nothing fixed. There's no ground, right? So it's a, it's about operating in a, like underwater or in outer space. There's no clear up or down. There's no inherent up or down or sideways. You're going every which direction at the same time. Well, then what? how is meaning generated? It's not that there's no meaning. It's that meaning is generated according to different operations, right? And that truth doesn't go away. Truth just becomes a mode of argument within this the sort of flux within the sort of free fall within the vertigo um and to me that's that's how i would define i define what's called post-modernity but it's and then within that all these people say very different things you know foucault derrida deleuze guattari you know uh roland bart i mean all these people are saying very kind of different things and they come to different conclusions and different modes of operation but all the thing they have in common is they don't seek an end to the flux. Everything is in flux. There's nothing outside the fray. Um, the categories of the world, uh, species, knowledge, those are all just more stories. It's stories all the way down. It's stories every which way that don't make them any less um, powerful, right? Um, it's not, they're not capricious, not arbitrary. Uh, it's that you can't separate facts from story if, if that you know, a, a sort of cryptic uh, uh, a summary of, of the way I see postmodernity. Well, I think that's kind of a, a, a good um, kind of a, a, a good lead in for the next time that we talk. And uh, I, I would really like to thank you for taking time out of your, you know, your evening here and, you know, talking with me and uh, talk and kind of letting everybody uh, in the audience know um, your, your thoughts on all these different, cause we went over quite a wide <laughs> covered, variety of topics. We did cover some territory. This was super fun. I, I, I gotta say, I love, I love your approach. I love, uh, it's, it's very cool, calm and open. It's very, um, it's great. It was a true pleasure. Yeah. And, and how can people follow you, uh, read, you know, your, where, where you're writing at? I know that you mentioned, I'll, I'll put the blog in, um, um, that, that I've already been reading, but you mentioned uh, Medium and then, you know, any any other way that they can get hold yeah, of you. Yeah, and, and then the Twitter. Who you're actually yeah, looking yeah. to talk to. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I mostly, you know, I've, I've been, I've been on Blogger, unfortunately. My, you know, my I've had that blog since 2008 and such a terrible interface, but I, I have so much content there. It's hard to get out of it. Um, but I've been writing more about the crypto stuff as part of the media magazine for for, for the company I, I, run, I run communications for. Um, and then, of course, the Twitter because I love the Twitter and I could, I could wax on about why the Twitter is incredible. Um, yeah, but I think there, you know, and then, you know, the, the secret thing I have out there with these Berkeley podcasts, these lectures, uh, but all that is, can be linked to from, uh, my blog, which is, uh, I think you have the link. So, um, yeah. And I'll have, uh, the links to everything that we talked about, all the different articles and, um, all the ways to get a hold of Daniel on, uh, did you know, crypto, dot com slash ep52 for episode 52 that's ep52 and once again daniel thank you so much yeah thank you have a great night